With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, I'm Amanda from Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind MAPCO at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542. 6265 or download our Trifecta Fitness app for a full list of upcoming classes. Next guest has seen what awaits at the end of the at the end of this life because she's been there. 
and she can certainly assure you it's a new beginning, more beautiful than you can now comprehend. A good death begins today, and with it, a great life. Through her death experience, you can learn how to live your life to the fullest. You can engage in your own metamorphosis without having to die like she did. So without further ado, let's welcome U.S. Air Force veteran and award-winning health expert Nicole Kerr to the Misfit Nation. Thank you so much. I am <laughs> I am delighted and grateful and honored to be on your show today. It is awesome to have you here. Like I told you in a pre-show, when we have veterans with a great story that just makes raises it up notches and makes our hearts bleed a little little deeper for for what we're about to hear. Well, I've got quite the story, and it wasn't anything that I ever thought would happen, but um, I did come back from a near-death experience when I was 19 years old, and I was a cadet out at the United States Air Force Academy. I was one of the first female cadets. So if your audience remembers, women were admitted. Do you know the year they were admitted into the academies? I'll test you here. It was in the 80s. 76. So the first class, yeah, the first class graduated in 80 from all of them, West Point, Annapolis and U.S. Air Force Academy. So my class was 86. So I was right there at the beginning when they were integrating women into the academies. And I have to say there was a lot of resistance um, from a lot of people for that to happen. So, you know, not only if you, um, you know, as you go in as a freshman, as a dually, uh, you're going to get you're going to get emotional abuse. You're going to get physical abuse. I mean, hazing, whatever you want to call it. But with women coming in, it also uh, up the ante with sexual abuse, too. So that and it's still a problem, you know, unfortunately, uh, in the services now. Uh, there was a report out probably six months ago, West Point and then Air Force Academy uh, were the numbers were not going down. In fact, they were going up. And maybe that's because there's more reporting but it's not gotten better in terms of number of cases. Uh, so we've got to do better as a country about that and get make sure that people understand that that's not going to be tolerated. And it's not the way to do things. It's not the way to operate. No, no, not at all. Military. Not, yeah. not at all. But, um, but yeah, I, um, th that ended uh, that near death experience, that crash, um, I want to I want to start with that because I think that's uh, important. I went into the Air Force Academy uh, for the wrong reasons. Also, I went in to please my father. And I know a lot of other kids did the same thing. You know, their dads were graduated. They wanted one of their kids to go. Uh, you know, it's 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 not uncommon for a lot of parents to want their children to go to their alma mater. And so since the academy was admitting women, my dad thought it would be a good idea that I would be, you know, in one of those first classes, you know, him being a Air Force Academy graduate, him cross commissioning into the Marine Corps. Uh, he, you know, he was hardcore. And so I was just like, you know, I did not grow up thinking I wanted to be in the military. I know a lot of people do, but I didn't. I modeled. I did junior achievement. I did all these other uh, ballet, other uh, curricular activities that you just don't align with uh, with the military. So I went through all the, the testing. And when the congressman called me at high school and said that I was going to be admitted, I sat there just stunned because I really didn't think I was going to make it. And then when I got to boot camp uh, and they issued me everything except my bra, I was like, 
oh my God, they just took away everything. My contacts, you know, it was just, it was a bit of a shock <laughs> for me to say the least. Um, and that's when, you know, they were trying to figure out women's uniforms as well. And since I'm five feet 11, uh, I had to wear men's pants and like a woman's top. And of course they button reverse. So my gig line never lined up and I, I was always getting demerits for an improper gig line. And I was just, I was like, sir, May I, may I explain this? And they're like, no, Carl, you're getting written up. And it was just like constant stuff like that, where it was like, it's not my fault, but yet, you know, things like that. I, I felt like private Benjamin in a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was the third week of basic training when we got a three minute phone call. Okay. That was all we were allowed. And I called home and my mother answered the phone and I started crying and I just hyperventilated. We got three minutes. They were timing us and I cried the entire time, Rich. And it was like, my mother just kept, she couldn't believe it. She couldn't, she's like, well, can you quit crying and tell me what's going on? And I was like, no, you know, so when I get off the phone, uh, the commander's like, you know, curse, sit down and get yourself together. And I'm just like, it, I didn't realize till years later that was a panic attack. That was the first panic attack I had because I was, I was in over my head. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And learning how to kill people, I just didn't register that in my mind that that was going to be what I was going to be learning. And from a soul perspective, that certainly wasn't what my soul had signed up for. So I didn't want to be seen as a failure and I didn't want anybody to be disappointed in me. I'm a recovering people pleaser. That is a really, really big trait for a lot of women in particular, but uh, Southern women in mostly, I guess I would say. But uh, I realized then that I was not in the right place, but couldn't get out. I just couldn't face the shame of quitting and going back home. So I continued on. I went into our flight and it got worse, remedial, but I somehow made it by the grace of God. I don't know how I did it, but I made it. And then I got into the school year and then uh, did survival training, all of that through the next summer. And as we were getting ready to enter the sophomore year, uh, we had a squadron function. Uh, I was one of the last cadets to leave since I got there late. There was another guy there who was a senior and he had a car and I asked him for uh, a ride home. And this is what happened. Oh, wow. If you can see that, that's a 1965 Corvette convertible. And needless to say, uh, it's, it does, it's not survivable. And, uh, you know, everybody always wants to be on the front page of the paper, right? So there, wow. there's what it was like. Um, I know that's kind of hard to see, but this is in my book uh, that I just released, You Are Deathless, uh, A Near-Death Experience Taught Me How to Fully Live and Not Fear Death. And I noticed up here, one of my credentials is BTDT been there, done that. And I think wow. every, every veteran should put that on their resume because there is nothing more important than experience. I trust someone who has experience over book learning and theory. And so I have now been to the other side or at least part of it and come back. And I can tell you the way I was raised as a Southern Baptist growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, the Bible Belt, and Lutheran because my mother was Lutheran and my dad was Baptist. So we had to go to both churches. 
so we spent a lot of time in church as do a lot of people and it becomes your cornerstone cornerstone or foundation of growing up um and what i always knew is that god was there was a duality god was loving kind a protective and then God also had a set of rules and the church had a set of rules. And if you didn't obey those, then the wrath of God was going to come on you. You'd go to hell, you'd be judged and you'd be punished. So that was the image of God that I went to the Air Force Academy with. OK, and I can't tell you how many times I went to that chapel, which is beautiful. It's an architectural wonder if anybody's ever been out to Colorado Springs. But I would I would just sit in there on Sunday morning just to get away from the upperclassmen and being harassed, you know, and I would pray and nothing changed. You know, I was still getting harassed. I was still uh, struggling. You know, nothing, nothing would change no matter how hard I prayed. And I just finally started kind of giving up on God Um during that time in my life, that concept of God, because it didn't matter what I prayed. I never saw any evidence of anything different. It all felt like it landed on me. I had to, I had to change it. And I had been kind of told that this kind of like vending machine concept of God, that if you put in the right behavior and you do the right things, you push the Coca-Cola button, then out comes the Coke. Well, that wasn't happening, you know, out was coming a Mountain Dew or nothing, nothing, you know, and it's like, of course, it had to be me. I did something wrong, right? It's never God or whatever that image is. So my faith really just went, and then this accident happened and I was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, I was um, covered up there there was this was right outside a monument which is right outside the academy and uh some passerbys in a house had heard the wreck and came out and couldn't get any vitals on me so they went inside and got a blanket and covered me up called 911 the driver uh a fellow cadet who was a senior who I didn't know really well uh he was alive uh he had been drinking and he had way too much alcohol. And on the way back, he wanted to stop and have some more alcohol at another bar. And then he wanted to stop and want, and um, watch the sunset over the Rocky Mountains. And me, I had never been on a date. Now here my dad sends me to a school with 4,000 guys. And Rich, I've never even been on a date. Wow. So I I know. So I am like, oh, talk about a dumb blonde in that sense. I mean... <laughs> I'm smart. I have multiple degrees and, and, and work for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But in that area, I was just I was so naive. I didn't realize that he had this agenda to have, you know, get me drunk, so to speak, and then take advantage of me from a sexual perspective. And so that's actually when my memory came back 19 years later. That's what I remembered as I said no to him and he got angry and he took the wheel and um, he was speeding and the car fishtailed and hit a huge boulder and then it flipped the car and we were both ejected and I was found in a ditch and couldn't get any vitals on me, multiple injuries. And so when the voluntary unit, fire department units, and then the the, the real ones showed up, um, they 
I call him my angel. There's a chapter in the book called um, My Angels, and he's one of them. Uh, and he was an EMT. He was in the Navy and he worked 40 hours a week at his other job, but he loved working 60 to 80 hours. So he signed on as a voluntary EMT. And, wow. and so he took one look at me when he finally got there, which was 10 to 15 minutes later. So they estimate that I was clinically dead for about 10 to 15 minutes. And um, he came to my hospital room ooh, probably 10 weeks after the accident happened and introduced himself and told me what happened because I had no memory other than bright white lights uh, of, of the accident. And he said, basically, when he took the blanket off, um, he couldn't get any vitals. So they started doing a sternal knuckle rub, um, which elicits pain in the body. And the only thing that he could get to tell him that I was alive was my right pupil, my right eyelid flickered and my pupil dilated. Wow. Now, if you think about that from a soul perspective, what do we say about our eyes? You know, that saying they're the eyes, they're the, the, the path to the soul. Yeah. The eyes are the window to the soul. And we've heard that, right? Yeah. Most of us have. So the moment he did that, my soul, which had left when I went through the windshield and up into the air, uh, came back through my eye. Wow. Yes. So he was witness to it. <laughs> yes. And then he was able to get a blood pressure on me of 60 over zero. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So then he started doing CPR. They put on these things. They just got them on the bus called masked pants. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or seen it, but they're pants you put on that forces all the blood up to your organs. Um, I had cut off my left foot. I'd fractured my pelvis. I, I severed my wrist. I had horrific road burn on the side of my face. Uh, I had a fourth degree laceration um, on the inside of my right thigh, cut all the way up to my vagina. It was bad. So I was at a point where I was what they call bleeding from the bone, which is um, extreme shock. So they got me to the closest community hospital. And that night on call was a thoracic surgeon, the first female surgeon in Colorado Springs, the first female medical student at Jefferson College in Philadelphia. She was a maverick and she didn't know if she was going to be able to, to save me or not, but they worked on me all night long and were finally able to stabilize me. And I wound up in ICU for seven weeks. And I talk about it extensively in the book about my injuries, about how it was life and death every day you know, because I had to have a colostomy to divert my stools. It was, you know, and I'm 19 years old and I, I just am like, I, I, I was on drugs, a morphine, Demerol and Valium for every four hours for seven weeks straight. And that's how much pain I was in. And it was just a, a long haul in the hospital. And then it was a long haul in rehab. It took me eight months to start walking again. They didn't think I would walk again. Um, you know, I, I just, I started out in a swimming pool, you know, and just tried to, to do stuff that was uh, just moving that way and then seeing physical therapist. And uh, I had a lot of nerve damage and it was, uh, it was a lot. And I will tell you um, 
my parents are very religious. And when the doctors told them that Nicole needed to see a psychologist, they said, well, God and Jesus are her psychologist. And that didn't help. Okay. Because as soon as I uh, left my parents, I basically went back to an infant state of being dependent on them uh, for everything to go to the bathroom, to be fed, everything. And here are all my other friends growing up in high school. They're off at Ole Miss or Mississippi State. And I'm at home by myself, well, with my mother and my father's in and out. Uh, the rest of my siblings are all off on school or college. And I got nobody, you know? So I got real codependent with my mother. And by the time I could start functioning physically, my dad said, okay, I'm going to send you to live with your sister in Dallas. And he thought physically, since I seemed fine, that I was fine, but I wasn't. And then I developed an eating disorder because of all the pain that I was in. And I, uh, you know, I would just stuff all this food down because I couldn't allow myself to feel all the pain. And back then, they really didn't even know what binge eating disorder even looked like. Um, it was just called compulsive eating. And that I dealt with that for uh, almost 20 years. And I write about it in the book, how much shame I have about it, how much I hated myself. I hated all the scars because I had gone from modeling. I was if you remember 17 magazine, I was their representative from Mississippi. So wow. now it's like I've got I'm scarred everywhere. And our culture for women, especially, is about physical beauty, you know, for a lot for, for many of us growing up. And there's a lot of body dysmorphia, there's a lot of body image issues. And um, of course, you know, I couldn't understand I had a colostomy, I couldn't see that anybody would want or desire me, especially from a sexual level. And so that really took a, uh, my self-esteem nosedived really, really bad during those years. And, um, and I didn't understand why I couldn't stop. You know, it, it seemed to be an issue and it was an issue of control. I had no control over that wreck. And so the only thing I can control in my life was the food. And that's where I went at first. And, you know, I managed to succeed in terms of life achievements. I graduated from, from school, uh, from college. I went on to get my master's in public health. I became a dietitian to fix myself. I was going to figure out why I was overeating and come to find out I didn't have anything. To, the food was the symptom, you know. Um, so, you know, I spent all those years, you know, trying to find some answers and just get myself uh, mentally. I started seeing a therapist. Um, I was on 41 different medications, you know, for them to try to look at uh, depression, anxiety. I just two years ago got rated by the VA for PTSD. Wow. Wow. Well, not, su not surprising, but yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, I will say if you're dealing with a claim persistence, I had to go up three, I was on the third appeal for migraines because they told me it wasn't documented that I had a head injury. And so back then they didn't know TBIs, you know, 1983. I mean, heck, they weren't even screening the blood for HIV transfusions, exactly. you know? 
and and so yeah. Uh, yeah and it's just like wow um and then for all these years you know my rating had uh had been stuck at a certain level and then I got here to New Bern and I had an advocate and he said, Nicole, look here, it's right in your medical chart from 1983 patient um, appears dead upon arrival. She came in dead upon arrival. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's, that's a head injury, you know? And so he, he just wrote that, sent it back off. Next thing I know, my bank account up, my bank account went up by thousands of dollars and I went, Oh my God, what is this? And then I looked and they gave me, uh, finally, they've given me the 100% uh, disab disability rating, but it took 38 years to prove that, you know, and I, of course, I got compensated for all the other, the leg, the foot and all the other stuff, but it was trying, the one that has been the worst are the migraines, because you can't read, you can't watch TV. It's not like any other illness where you can sit and do something. Right. I have to be in complete dark. You know, uh, I, I I can't noise any of that. Just uh, nothing. So you're stuck with your mind just going like this or just um, trying to, you know, take something to, to hopefully get it to, to settle down. So to me, migraines, you know, are just so debilitating because you can't function at all. So um, that's probably still one of my, you know, uh, you can't depend on, like, I can't depend on myself to sign up for something to say I'll be there because I don't know if I'm going to wake up with a headache or not. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to show up. And I think that's been one of the hardest things for me as someone who was so dependable and the military was so like, uh, you know, you have to be here, you have to be here on time and to not be able to commit to things like I used to, because I'm not sure I, I just you know, I'd rather say no, and then maybe I'll show up instead of yes, and have to call them and say no. That's that's been really difficult for me um, as someone who wants to, you know, uh, just do the right thing and right. be there. So, yeah, I've been talking a lot. <laughs> so, did you want to ask any questions? Sorry, well, I just got going there. That part, that part <laughs> goes to that part you just said. There goes to your. You're recovering people pleasing from uh yes and that right there you don't want to let people down so yeah when the migraines do flare up and and now i mean you and the time this happened to you is probably the optimal worst time in uh military medicine the late 70s early 80s into the 90s when it was still cut and paste medical cut and paste medical cut and paste benefits and if you were not fight like you said if you don't have an advocate you're not going to get what you want but it's it's sad to say this, but thanks to those in Vietnam who went through all that pain and suffering and coming home and getting told you have nothing. And those dudes and dudettes would just say, okay, yeah, I was going back to work because VA said I can't do anything. They're not going to do anything for me. And they just took that. They yeah. took, there was a couple advocates from there that said, Hey, you got to go back and fight. And there's some of them that fought. And that's how the system has finally slowly changed for the generation that's coming out of the global war on terrorism now where you come as you're leaving the military, they do that full VA stack on you. They go mm -hmm. through every piece of your record. So like for you with them not noting that you were declared dead somehow, but that's insanity itself. But that if that like with me, I never admitted having a head injury after I got blown up. I got blown up and I told the doctor I was fine, but he put in my record head injury. Mm -hmm. I said I was mm -hmm. fine. I never blacked out. He put in there and I never seen it. 
But when I went for my VA thing, I got TBI and I got migraines because of that doctor. He knew at that point that I was, I was not right. Yeah. And he set me up after I got wounded, but I never, I didn't get his name, nothing. Cause I just wanted to get back to the fight. I, yeah. I got to get back in the fight and go back and do my job. And he'd set me up. But if not for him, I would not have that rating either. I would be still fighting and, and sitting in dark rooms because that's how I was dealing with it. Even yeah. though I didn't know it, I was dealing with it by shutting lights out and just sitting in the corner in the cold. Yeah. Please, please yeah. calm down so I can do this so I can function tomorrow. And that's what I would do. So you've been on, uh, the, like you said, 30 years it took to get that, uh, 20 years, uh, uh, 19 years to get your memory back. That's a yeah. long time as well. Yeah. And, and then when I got my memory back, it was like, oh, my gosh, is this the truth? Because, you know, it's like it's so shocking because what what I remembered was going over to the other side. I flew out of the car and I talk about it in my book. I get really real detailed in it. And I just want to read just a little portion. I went to I was coming out of Starbucks. I was going to work at CDC. And all of a sudden I had this flashback of how I was sitting in the car in that Corvette. And I, I was wow. just like, oh my gosh, now that makes sense how I cut my left foot off and how I cut up the, all the insides of my thighs. I didn't have like skull damage or, or spinal, but I cut everything else around that. But I say in my book, um, I am spinning around insanely fast like those tilt-a-wheel carnival rides, grabbing the side, grabbing the side of the car door. I scream as my side of the car smashes head-on into something. What is it? I realize I can't stop anything, and my voice fades. I fly out of my seat through the windshield. Around me, glasses shattering like splatter paint. I feel pieces of it cutting into my thighs and legs. God, this hurts. And then something slices my left foot. Bad. I try to shield my face with my hand, my mouth wide open under it. Then I'm in the air what feels like forever. When I finally hit the ground, I understand that I am going to die. My mind freezes. I scream. Oh, my God, help me. Then I have one final thought. I'm not going to make it. And I didn't. And so... That's the kind of memory that I came back with. And when I was frozen up, uh, you know, after I flew out of the windshield, that's when I say in the book, it was like Casper the ghost. But I know now it was my grandfather who came in an angelic form and he was in his 30s. And I always knew it was male. I just always knew it was a male. And just this past August, my grandfather came to me in a, in a dream and said he died at age 58 and that's my age. And so he said, I was the one that came and lifted you out because I was seeing all the abuse that you were going under and that you had come through and that you were so tired and you wanted out and you didn't know how to get out. And so this wreck saved me, so to speak, but it also, oh my God, it totally changed my life. It changed my, who I am and in a good way now, but getting to this point has been a lot of pain and suffering and just, it's just been a lot, a lot to deal with. And so when I, when I got to that other side, I got lifted up. Um, I could hear other 
spirits and angels. And you have to remember, I didn't have a body form. And so it wasn't English they were speaking. I don't know how I understood it, but they were saying that we here on earth have to ask the angelic realm, the angels for help. They're not going to interfere in our lives unless we ask them for help. And so in my case, because it was life and death, they will intervene in an emergency situation like that, which is what my grandfather did. Um, so that's one lesson. To, and people laugh when I say, you know, I even ask the angels for help with a parking space. People say that a lot, you know, but it's true. They get it, you know. And so, you know, it's about developing that relationship with that spiritual side and know that we all have a guardian angel and some of us have more than one and they're always with us. And for those of us that have been in the military and we've survived a near death accident, we have. I believe a military angel that has been placed with us to continue to protect and defend us the rest of our life, because we're coming back with a message, with a calling, with a special uh, assignment, so to speak. So we need um, help in making sure nothing happens to us as we come into alignment with what that is supposed to be. Uh, and so the other message I got was directly from my angel, my, my grandfather. And that was that I was going back and I could see my body, Rich. I could see it in the ditch. I could see what I was wearing. And, uh, it was a corpse just laying there. And I was like, oh no, I don't want to go back in that body. Cause I knew what was going to happen. I was going to go back and I was going to have to be raised with my mom and dad again, back into that Bible belt. And I just, I mean, that's the time when everybody starts becoming their own person. And now I'm going to be totally back to an infant state. And uh, anyway, I was told I was going back and my mission was to tell people not to be afraid of death. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty uh, broad range message there. You know, uh, anything more specific? <laughs> and they said no. Uh, and it's interesting that it's taken me almost 40 years to publish. Uh, I published it last August. And I feel like one of those Israelites that's wandering around in the, the wilderness for 40 years because my whole entire adult life has been trying to manage my life my uh my condition my situation uh and under understanding and evolving in wellness from the physical to the emotional to the mental and now here i am in the spiritual quadrant trying to help people realize that we don't need to fear death that we're never alone that we're never going to be judged up there there is no duality of god up there God is love, period, end of sentence. There's no wrath of God coming on anybody. There's no judgment. And I think that's one of the most important lessons is that we have got to quit judging ourselves so harshly and judging others. And so there's many lessons learned that uh, I put in the book that come actually from uh the most 10 common themes of near-death experiencers, and they're all positive. And the first one is we don't die. When we physically die, our energy body cracks open and our soul and our spirit leave us. And you will see that if you're around somebody who's dying, their breath escapes them, okay? And that breath goes on. That's their soul. 
And I can tell you when you're at a, at a funeral and if it's an open casket, you can look at that person and they don't look the same as they were when they were alive. You know, they just, I don't care how they try to, you know, cosmetically make them, they just don't look, you know, and it's because they're missing their life force. And, and, and it's just like, wow, you know, your soul goes on and it will continue um, when you get to the other side, you are going, you do not go alone. You are greeted with uh, deceased loved ones. You're greeted with angels, pets. You don't cross over by yourself. And I know a lot of people feel bad that they weren't with their loved ones, when, especially during COVID or in any situation. But I will tell you, I died alone, you know, and it didn't make any difference that somebody was there or not. You know, I was carried up and met, you know, with my grandfather in this case. So um, I want people to know that we need to reframe the concept in our society of death. It's not doom and gloom and it's not negative. And we need to start teaching our children this as well, because they are growing up and they are really scared of death. And especially if a parent passes away they're they're like mommy you're not gonna die are you and this happened with my sister and and she told her children no no i'm not nothing's gonna happen to me and and i said to her you know you don't know that there's no guarantees on our when we're gonna go to the you know when we're gonna die i mean it can be a child it can be a, a teenager it can be an old person we think of it we teach people they're older people, but that's just not the truth. And I think we have to do a better job of spiritually preparing ourselves for that time. So it doesn't matter if it's sudden or if we get a terminal diagnosis, you know, and if we have all the physical, the paperwork and all that, if we have it, if we're ready, so to speak, then it doesn't matter how it comes. Exactly. And, uh, you hit a good, a couple of good points in that one there, like asking the angels for help or praying uh, jelly roll country singer just came out with a song. We only talk to God when we need a favor. And that's what a lot yes. of people do. They only pray to God when they need a favor. They don't pray to God to thank him or thank, thank for anything that happened. It's when you're at your wits end, you pray and say, I need this. And I think that's something we need to reverse and start just thanking him for being up every day, waking up in the morning, you stack those victories. The morning you get up, you start stacking those victories all day and be positive about what you've done. A few years ago, before my mom passed, my dad and mom were at the house and I went to visit them. And a lot of their friends have been passing because they're up in age. I asked my dad how he felt about it. And he said, there's not really much to feel about it. We, we all have an appointment. We just got to be ready when it happens. Yes. And, and right there, I said, it's common sense. And that's just how my dad's been his whole life. It's just straightforward. And that's how you live your life. You live your life the best way you can and the best for other people. So they remember you as the great person you were, not as some someone that was always living, like you said, in fear, which is kind of which as the whole world has morphed to it in the last 2.5 years, whatever, since yeah. uh, COVID started, they instill fear. Every every news agency is instilling fear. If you take the vaccine, you're going to die. If you don't take the vaccine, you're going to die. If you breathe on someone, you're going to die. So everyone thinks you're going to die no matter what you do. If you walk the wrong side of the street, you're going to die. Just live, live your life and be, be a great human. And that's the best way to live. Yes, exactly. And that's just it. If you're living with fear, you're living at a low vibration, you're scared to go live your life. And, you know, you've got to be responsible and you've got to use your brain uh, to make decisions. But, you know, that's 
That's why I wrote this book is to help you with your fears about death. And if you come from a religion where there was a duality taught to you about God, that gets imprinted really early as a child and you will be scared that you're not going to go to heaven or you're not going to be with your loved ones. And that's not true. That's a man-made myth to keep you in fear, which the church can then control you. God is just love. He's pure energy. And that's that white light. Because if you think about white light, it's actually made up of all the colors of the rainbow because it contains all the wavelengths. So being cocooned in something like that, oh my gosh, where there's no judgment, there's no, everyone and everything is connected. You know, we all are connected because we're all energy. That vapor that comes out, that's energy. That's not anything else, you know, and, and it doesn't have a color, you know, it's not coming out red or black or brown or whatever, you know, our breath is all the same color, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it smells and then, worse than others, but it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. Um, and, and the other reason, uh, other two reasons I wrote the book was to support you through the loss of loved ones. And we are human and we are spiritual. So the human part does have to grieve, you know, it does have to feel those feelings. You can't just push them down. They're going to if you do keep pushing them down, they're going to start coming out in physical dis-ease. And that is what I see a lot of times with the military is they don't teach you to express your emotions. It's uh, yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. So uh, a lot of veterans and military people have difficulty with relationships because they're not taught to um, express their true emotions. And I would say that we're a very illiterate country when it comes to emotions. Most of us grow, grew up with bad, sad, mad, and glad. All the ads, yes. <laughs> and, for us, and for us girls, it's like, don't you get angry or don't you hurt your mother. I mean, that was like the big one. Don't hurt your mother, you know. Even, Bible belt, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess the, the last reason I wrote the book is I wanted to inspire you to live fully and freely and with your heart and your hands wide open because there's so much love out there and there's so much good. And to be able to recognize that in yourself is the first challenge, that you are love, that you are good, that that is your soul's nature is beauty and love and um, just this all encompassing um, brilliance, you know, and we forget that we get spiritual amnesia because we get all these filters put on us through the years that other people said, this is who you should be, or this is what you should believe, or this is what happens. And we have to unravel that to find out who our true core self is. Awesome. All great reasons to write the book. And I'm glad you uh, you did come back from from laying in that ditch under the blanket and they they were able to catch you and bring you back to us and able to live the life you have lived and get the education you have gotten in order to help others and to thrive in your own life. So if you Thank don't mind, you. Hold, Thank well, you so much. hold up your book again for the YouTubers. Yeah. So see it. Uh, there you go. You are deathless by Nicole Kerr.
and where can we get that, Nicole? Uh, it's on Amazon and it's on Barnes and Nobles. You can order it through your independent bookstore. It's uh, there's a paperback nine ninety nine. I mean, come on, that's what a venti frappuccino and a donut hole. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, okay, as a dietitian, I, I have to go back and look at my prices there again. But um, anyhow, uh, you can get it there. It's a uh, Kindle, and I'm now doing the Audible because nice. I realized thirty percent of the market. Um, um, doesn't like to read anymore or unable to read. Let's put it that way. So I'm uh, uh, 12 chapters. I'm on 10. So the audible should be out in the spring nice. and hopefully that'll be uh, reading it in my own voice though. I didn't realize it would trigger me in some way. So um, it's different when you write something and to all those aspiring authors out there, this book actually healed me writing it, putting it down, being honest, being vulnerable not caring what anybody else thought. I wrote it for me, but I also wrote it for you. I didn't write it for my family because they clearly have some issues with some of the stuff I put in there. Um, but it really comes from my heart and it comes from a place that I want people not to be fearful of death. It really is beautiful on the other side and truly, um, I think what we get scared of is the process of dying, you know, if that's going to be painful or whatever, but um, the actual death itself is beautiful. And please, um, if you get the book, please leave me a review, please. Uh, I have a website, uh, Um, I can send you the first chapter for free. Uh, so you get an idea. Uh, it's got pictures in it. People know those are pictures. I'm like, yes, they're pictures. And um, and I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And that's all that I can manage. <laughs> all right. And the website is going across the bottom of the screen. And for those listening, it will be in the show notes. So you can uh, look up Nicole and find out her story, maybe get in contact with her and have you ha have her on your show as well. Great story. Oh, yeah. and great journey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you for being on. And again, thank you for coming back to us. <laughs> that's a, that's a bigger thing than me. Yes. <laughs> we appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are 